I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Soil, earth, dirt, it's far more than just a growing medium. Unlike the activity above ground, the myriad webs of life beneath the surface are often overlooked. But we're here to challenge that on today's show and share a slice of the rich biodiversity that can be found in soil. We'll be talking to Dr Magdalena Bossoff about a certain worm-like organism that exists in your garden in abundance and how to watch out for any unfriendly turns. And we take a trip to North Yorkshire to hear from an expert horticulturist on the best approach to making some tip-top compost. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. But first, fungi. You might be most familiar with them in the supermarket aisle as tasty mushrooms to add to your favourite dish. But fungi are far more complex and impactful on the home garden than many of us realise. We headed to RHS Garden Wisley to get to grips with the biology beneath us. My name is Jassy Draculich and I'm a plant pathologist based at RHS Wisley. I'm a researcher and the primary focus of my research is honey fungus, which is a pathogen that rots the roots of plants and kills them. However, I've grown fond of and much more aware of all the other fungi that exist in the garden and the manifold ways that they serve to benefit the plants and the wildlife in a garden environment. Fungi are a whole separate kingdom of life, separate to the kingdom of plants and animals, although it is more closely related to animals than it is plants. And so therefore, fungi are more recently related to us as cousins than they ever were to plants. Most people come across fungi for the first time when you're probably eating them. So you're having mushrooms, but a mushroom is not a whole fungus. A mushroom is just the part that fruits and produces the spores of the fungus, helping that fungus to spread its spores long distances in the wind or in the rain or on animals. Whereas the rest of the body of the fungus exists growing through whatever it was using for food. So that could be a piece of wood, it could be the soil, it could be a leaf. And it's made up of a network of threads all joined together. That's the body and that's called the mycelium. Within the garden, the main mushroom that you need to be concerned about and learn how to recognize if you're worrying about things that can attack your plants is honey fungus. And we've got some really good resources on the website in order to help you identify honey fungus mushrooms. Things to look out for really are that it's growing at the base of a plant or a stump that's usually dead or dying or struggling in some way. And when the mushroom is 
grow, they are produced as a whole clump. So it's unlikely it'll just be one at a time or just a few sort of a bit spread out. They'd all be growing from one central base with loads of different stalks. And honey fungus can really produce massive clumps. It can be really impressive to see. But amongst this cluster of mushrooms, some of them will be higher up than others. And you'll be able to do a check by pulling them apart, looking at the lower down mushroom caps to see what color the spores are. Because when the spores drop down by gravity, they'll land on the lower down caps. And honey fungus has pale spores. This is important because the most common lookalike sulfur tuft, a saprophyte, helpfully degrading dead material and helping other plants and wildlife nearby, produces dark spores. And it also grows in clusters. It's quite a sulfurous yellow, but if you're still seeing it for the first time, a lot of the features look the same as a honey fungus mushroom cluster. But the black spores will really help you tell it apart. Dark spores, not harmful. White spores could well be honey fungus. The trouble with honey fungus is that it can attack living plants. It's not one of these saprophytes. It can live as a saprophyte. That means once it's killed the plant, it can then feed on the dead material. But it isn't only a saprophyte, it is also a pathogen attacking the living sapwood of healthy roots, turning them into non-functional roots. And what that does to the plant is mean it can't use those roots to take up water and nutrition. The plant dies back above the ground, the leaves hang on the tree, and there you go, you've got a whole big dead tree with loads of food for honey fungus to keep feeding on and then grow out and feed on something else when it finds it. If you find a healthy tree, was healthy earlier in the year, suddenly dies back, it's got honey fungus coming out of it, you're worried about it spreading. The only thing really at your disposal is to dispose of it, to dig out as many roots as you can. Don't just cut the tree to a stump and leave it there because that's a food source for the fungus. And obviously this is really hard work. If any root systems that have overlapped with that could also be contaminated. So the most strict advice is to get rid of everything that's been in contact with the fungus. But that can be a lot of devastation to a garden. So trying to just kind of take out what you think is the hub of the fungus and then as things die, take out one thing at a time is a very practical approach. But yeah, we'd love to come up with some better solutions. For instance, using beneficial fungi to fight back the honey fungus. And we're still quite a few years from being able to do that. But that's one of our promising avenues of RHS research. The way I got involved thinking about soil microbiome diversity was after I found out that honey fungus are really poor competitors for deadwood. And it kind of made me think, if we're trying to eradicate honey fungus from gardens, can we stack the balance in favor of the saprophytes by putting lots of saprophytic fungi and lots of dead wood into our gardens? Because then our malaria isn't be able to use those resources as, as readily. And maybe it'll just be on the back foot all the time. But saprophytic fungi are really, I think, the most important group of beneficial fungi to exist in gardens. They are what creates a rich, fertile soil that helps retain moisture and recruit other organisms such as bacteria and invertebrate wildlife that help the decomposition process after fungi kind of get it going. And then all these other organisms really contribute to the later stages and other fungi then get involved in the even later stages as well. And it creates this whole succession of life and just vibrancy in what looks just like dirt to us. We really need to stress just how much benefit all these other fungi are doing to our gardens and that in majority of cases, when you do find a fungus, it will be one of these beneficial ones because there's so few that are causing any harm. What they do to the garden is they break down dead material and that is breaking down cellulose and lignin particularly that no other organisms can really gain access to. And once they unlock that, other things can then contribute to this recycling process. 
releasing the nutrition and the minerals from within wood and within leaves and all sorts of dead material and allowing plants and wildlife to then utilize those. It also creates habitats, hollows inside dead wood. This could be standing dead wood. It's a natural part of a tree's aging to hollow out inside. And this encourages invertebrate wildlife. It also encourages new suckers to form from the trees so they can have like a little new lease of life as they go through kind of old age. And also with those hollows and that wildlife biodiversity comes the small mammals and the birds and the richer biodiversity, the more shiny and attractive stuff that people do spend a bit more time paying attention to. But I'd love to draw that attention back to the real kind of drivers of change from death back into life again. And that is the fungi. And they're not just fantastic in terms of their role that they play. They're just stunningly beautiful. Looking at the great array of different colors and shapes and sizes in all these different overlooked, underloved places in the garden, they just bring a whole other sense of magic. And also, they're not around all year. It's the timeliness, the temporary nature that really is a thrill when you do stumble across them. So yeah, I think this can bring extra levels of joy to a gardener for appreciating them in their growing space. If fungi really could thrive in our gardens, we'd be seeing them popping up. There'd be no area of the garden that would be lacking in interest. These unused spaces would suddenly become alive with different colors and different shapes. There'd be amateur deceivers on the way to the doorstep. There'd be red-lid roundheads poking up beneath the elder tree. You'd have mycorrhizal fungi in abundance with all of your big mature native trees, fly agarics and milk caps under the oak trees. Heartwood fungi would be allowed to carry trees through from maturity into old age without just suddenly being chopped down at the first sight of a fungus. And maybe we'd see more of our rarer species of fungi around, things like the lion's mane, which is a cascade of white tassels that really loves thick, dead wood and we just don't see a lot of thick dead wood anymore so it really is declining and unfortunately that needs our protection so it's one of these red listed species that has legal status to ensure its habitat is preserved. So yeah I hope that this has inspired you to see fungi as friends and to be part of the change to encourage them embrace them support them and if you can take photos encourage others and spread the fungal love. Thanks, Dr. Draculich. It's always disappointing to lose a plant to honey fungus, and often the plant is a tree or a shrub of quite a large size that's a really important part of your garden. But there's nothing we can do about it at the moment. It's nature's balance, and we just have to carry on safe in the knowledge that honey fungus is not that common. Fungi are actually so important for the soil because they're amazing chemists. They can extract nutrients from the soil, which they pass on to plants. And in doing so, they produce lots of fungal material, long chain polysaccharide sort of things that glue the soil together and give it structure so that water can drain, air can get in and plant roots grow. A lot of gardeners, including me, feed the soil with organic matter, compost, for example, or make paths of wood or bark chips. And these encourage fungi, which is a good thing and will gradually improve improve the soil and the wildlife in the garden. Fungi are one of the magical things in nature, both in the garden and in the wild. I very much look forward to hearing the results of our science work, especially that from Jassy, about the fungi beneath our feet and what's going on in the soil, on which, after all, all our gardening and indeed all nature, except in the sea, of course, depends.
But it's not just fungi living in our gardens. Vital to the health and fertility of our soils, and incredibly accounting for around 80% of all land animals, is the tiny yet mighty nematode. We sat down with a specialist in plant nematology to hear what these little creatures are up to and what we should watch out for this autumn. Nathan Cobb is an American nematologist and he said that if you take away everything on earth and only the nematodes are left behind, you would still be able to see the outline of the earth because they are so abundant. About 80% of animals on Earth are actually nematodes, and they occur everywhere where you find organic matter, you will find nematodes. So about 30,000 species have been described, and I think they estimate this is only 5% of the total that's out there. So there's still a lot to discover. My name is Magdalena, and I'm a scientist in the plant health team. All of us have something that we love and specialize in, and for me, that is nematology. It's a very simple question, what is a nematode? But there are so many different kinds, and they occur in abundance in almost every habitat on Earth. So a nematode is a multicellular worm-like organism. They are part of a healthy soil food web. So they are food to other organisms higher in the food web, for example, mites. And they're also part of breaking down organic material and setting that nutrients and minerals free so that plants can take it up and absorb it and grow healthy. We are in the middle of October. It's finally bulb season. And I just want to give you a few tips of what to look out for, how to select bulbs and avoid things like stem and bulb nematode. Stem and bulb nematode is also called onion bloat nematode or narcissus eelworm nematode. They are plant parasitic. So this is a specific group within the phylum nematoda and they feed on plant cells. They are extremely small, so half a millimeter, and you will need a microscope to identify them to a species level. They have something called the stylet, which puncture plant cells. They inject enzymes. This breaks down the cell walls. They will set up a feeding site. This will cause cells to die out, and you will have other pathogens that will come into that wound and it just puts the plant in a more sensitive position. It opens up the field for another disease to come in. So stem and bulb nematode, it enters the bulb at the top where the new growth sprouts. So new growth would be stunted, so your plant will look smaller. There will be yellowing because the plant cells can't take up nutrients the way it normally would. You can also, at the back of the leaf sometimes, you will find something called speckling. So if you take your finger and you rub it across a young leaf, you will find little bumps. And sometimes it will not flower. 
there could be several things that could potentially damage bulbs and we will have to do an extraction to be able to diagnose, okay, it is stem and bulb nematode. Because they're microscopic, you won't be able to see. But if you cut the bulb in half and you see these brown concentric rings, potentially it could be stem and bulb nematode. So send that sample in. You do not want stem and bulb nematode in your soil because it spreads extremely quickly and it has a very wide host range, not only on bulbs. This nematode can feed on potatoes, it can feed on carrots, it can feed on any kind of tubers. So prevention is key. If your bulbs look discolored or rotting in any way, avoid planting it. Because once you have infestation or infection in your soil, you will have to remove all the plant material in a meter radius around where you had an infection. This nematode is on the EPO, which is the European and Mediterranean Plant Protection Organization's list. For example, if there's a nursery producing bulbs and they find it, they do not need to contact the authorities, but plant material needs to be destroyed. You do not want this to spread because Europe and temperate regions there's constant outbreaks, and it's a big problem in the bulb industry. Always with gardening, you need to buy your plant material from a reputable seller, someone that knows what they're doing. For example, if in a commercial bulb production, they have something called hot water treatment, where bulbs are put in water at 44 degrees for three hours, and this kills all the nematodes. And they also add a fungicide on the outside of the bulb. So if you buy from a company that knows what they're doing, that have a good reputation, you probably will have a good quality bulb. So overall, the biggest percentage of nematodes are beneficial and good for our gardens and our soils. And most of the time, if you have a plant polycytic nematode infection in a garden environment where you have a diversity of plants growing, they are not so much of a problem. It's more in an agricultural environment where plants are grown in soil year after year and it's a monoculture and the soil doesn't have natural predators. So nematodes, they are the unsung heroes of our soil. They keep the food web healthy and keep organic material, that nutrient cycle going. Without nematodes, our soils will not be able to sustain plants. And to support your nematodes in your soil, add organic material that will give them enough fungi and bacteria to live on. I just love that you can plant bulbs now for next spring. So autumn is just the best time to go out, get your bulbs in the soil, and it's something to look forward to. My favorite bulbs are the snakehead fritillarias. They're beautiful. They have these little hanging heads and with a checkerboard pattern, and I find them just so unique. But they're quite small, and I like that they look semi-wild. And yeah, who can be angry at a beautiful tulip? So please feel motivated to go out there, enjoy the autumn weather, plant some bulbs, and have something to look forward to for next spring.
Thanks, Dr. Bosov. And for more information on how to send samples into the RHS Science Laboratories, follow the link in this episode's show notes. So keep an eye out for the naughty nematodes, if I can call them that, and rest assured that the beneficial nematodes are working on your behalf day and night. Magdalena mentioned that it is high time to plant bulbs and she's how much she's looking forward to seeing them in the spring. This is good advice. Bulbs really ought to go into the ground as soon as possible while there's a bit of moisture and warmth there before it gets too wet because they need to be chilled over winter if they're to flower to their best effect. This week I'm planting tulips. I love tulips. I love all kinds of tulips. The only problem with them is they tend to only last for one year and then die out, which gets expensive, so I have to have a curb on my enthusiasm. But this year, I've bought a mixture of tulips that are claimed, I don't know quite on what grounds, to come back year after year. And I'm going to pop these into a grassy part of my garden and see whether they will come back year after year. Very occasionally I see clumps of tulips that come back year after year and I hanker after them. I've never managed it yet, but who knows, 2023 may be the time for me. The best thing about soil is if yours isn't very healthy or you just need a top up, well, you can just make more. Compost is rich in plant nutrients and beneficial organisms like bacteria, protozoa, nematodes and fungi. It provides a fantastic boost to any garden soil and the best thing about it is it's converting your garden waste into something rich and new. We caught up with horticulturist Joe Lofthouse at RHS Garden Harlow Carr to hear about all the different ways you can make your own. There's lots of different compost bins out there and I'll just talk you through some of the options I've got for the different compost bins. Using wood is really good for your compost, especially pallets. They're quite cheap, a lot of people are giving them away now and they've got the air gaps in there as well to let the air get in and let it flow. Really easy to build, easy to take down as well. And also by putting it directly onto the ground as well, just lets the worms go up and help start to break it down. Any material is good as long as you can keep that temperature more or less constant in there and and that air to come through. The plastic ones you can get from DIY stores, garden centres, they're quite small and just have a little door on the front. They are really good for keeping that temperature in, in there though. The wooden ones quite often have the air gaps, the vents at the side, and often much bigger as well, so you can get a lot more in there. Quite easy to turn as well. Whereas the plastic ones, you know, they're quite expensive, really. Not very sustainable either. I just find the air can't really get in there and circulate as much as it can with the wooden ones. There's lots of different compost bins out there as well. There's the hot composters, which are probably quite good for some weeds such as like mare's tail, some of them really invasive weeds, because it heats up quite quick. You can see the temperature on them quite nicely. But I think if you're you know, you're turning your compost and you've got a good layer of the different greens and browns in there, you don't really need to be spending all that money on the big hot composter bins. So wormeries, we have one at Halakar, and what we have is you have different layers which the worms then start to work and we feed them as well. So we put in a lot of kitchen waste in there and what they do is they then start eating it and then start to make a nice liquid feed out of there as well as the compost. 
the liquid feed, we just water it on. So we're watering it on our raised beds, on all the fruit and the veg. If you don't have much room, the wormeries are great as well. They take up very little room. It's great fun, really, to see them working in there and how much they're eating. And just being able to see that whole process, really, and how they're working and moving through that wormery is quite cool, really. My recommendation for a compost bin would be just some pallets, really. Four pallets going straight onto the ground. Something really easy to do and really cheap. It's so important to make your own compost from all that waste material you have got and just seeing the process and being able to use it on your garden, recycling it and then growing them crops, good healthy crops in that compost, I think it's really rewarding. Last autumn we put a lot of compost on the beds so we make our own compost in the site yard here. We have a massive heap and we keep turning it around about five times a year. It's really good stuff. So we've been adding that onto the beds, say, last autumn, and we've just got a new batch ready to come out now, so that'll be the next job in a couple of weeks to start putting on the beds. We put the compost on all our fruit and the veg beds. We also put some on our herb beds, areas where it just needs improving, and we just leave that on as a nice layer on top of the soil. So now is a really exciting time where you all should get out and start making your own compost. You have a lot of green waste material and brown waste as well. So it's a brilliant time to start making your own compost. Thanks, Joe. Joe mentioned mare's tail. Mare's tail is a difficult perennial weed, of which there are several that you often encounter in gardens. Bindweed comes to mind, and so does ground elder. These things, if they're added to the compost in the normal way, might not be killed by the compost, especially if it doesn't get very hot. So if you've got these, one way is to consign them to the bonfire. But bonfires are frowned upon nowadays as they produce microparticles in the air that can cause upset to people's lungs. Or you can do what I do, which is to put them at the bottom of a new compost bin. So whenever I empty a compost bin, they're going to refill it. All the bindweed and the cooch grass and the ground elder and all the other creepy, crawly, nasty weeds go in the bottom. They're then covered with compost for about a year, after which they are finished. You never see them again and they're all rotted down. If that doesn't suit, people also pop them in a bucket of water. In the water, they can't grow, they rot and turn into an oozy stuff that you can pour around the base of your plants as a kind of fertiliser. Compost is really excellent. It's the best soil improver you can have. It's more or less free. And now is the time of year when you're clearing things from the garden, but you can really start filling your compost bins or making your heaps, whatever suits. And I think this is the case where perfection is the enemy of the good. Don't expect to get gardening personality TV compost, certainly not within three months. In reality, compost can take a year to rot down. It'll be a bit faster if you can turn it, but even if it's got a few twigs and things in, it'll still be excellent soil improver. So I would urge everyone to get composting. It'll improve the environment and it'll save you money. To most people, the stuff underfoot is just dirt. But I hope today we've given you a newfound appreciation for soil and the medley of life within it, supporting our world above. Soil is a living and precious resource. It really hurts me to see soil wasted or damaged. Sometimes I see soil thrown away as if it was worth nothing. 
But in fact, it's a fantastic resource and we should do everything we can to preserve it and make it better. It's the basis of countering the various crises that are facing the world now, like climate change and drought, environmental degradation. All of these can be countered in part by improving the soil. I'm really, really pleased by the enthusiasm that gardeners and farmers and conservationists and ecologists are showing for soil nowadays. For so long it was neglected, but the future for soil is looking really bright now that people are paying attention to it and taking steps to preserve it and even improve it. But that's it for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.